Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Our Reading Life in partnership with our friends from BiblioGuides. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft, and I'm here with Sarah Masaryk, and for Our Reading Life today, guess who we have? Tanya Arnold and no. Sarah Kim. I, I know, I know. I'm very surprised. That's why you have me for an announcer. <laughs> So, Diane, this is the February 2024 Our Reading Life episode, and that is the 12th Our Reading Life episode that we have recorded. So, girls, this has been a year of reading together in this way. So exciting. Yay! It is. I'm a little surprised. It's gone so fast. It has. It feels like we haven't been doing this for very long. Yeah. And yet it feels like we've always done it. Yeah, for sure. It's timey wimey. It is timey wimey. <laughs> Wibbly wobbly. <laughs> I love the Doctor Who reference, Tanya. And for our listeners at home, I uh, I was telling everybody about my feelings before we recorded this because I have introduced my kids. They watched a little tiny bit of Doctor Who when they were little, but not a lot. And they don't really remember it. Uh, Michael remembers more than the other kids. So last night... We got to the point in Doctor Who where we watched Turn Left, and then we couldn't stop. So we had to watch Journey's End and The Last Doctor, which is my Metacrisis Doctor, and I just can't handle how sad it is. So I'm having feelings today. (laughs) So (laughs) Doctor Who hangover? I am having a Doctor Who hangover. I am indeed, yes. (laughs) But also for the record, friends, there is no tacit endorsement here of anything Disney ruins, the new Disney Who. And that leads us into talking about books and how Disney loves to ruin our favorite books. (laughs) Let me see how I can try to connect that to the book. I was going to talk about... No, Well, the movie of your book is pretty good. (laughs) That's not Disney, though, right? No, and it is pretty not faithful, for the record. However, the chariot scene is awfully thrilling anyway, the chariot races. It is. Yeah. I actually think the chariot scene in the movie is better than it is in the book. (laughs) So I'm reading Ben-Hur. The galley scene, too. Oh, yeah. I was just remembering today that um, in in the biography that I read of Lou Wallace... They were talking about how this was done on the stage. Yeah. Not long after the book was written. So they did the galley scene on the ocean and they did the chariot race on the stage. That's incredible. It's incredible. (laughs) It had to have been really impressive. It would be impressive now, but back then it had to have been really impressive. It is. Have you ever seen the pictures of Charlton Heston's son? On the chariot with him? I don't remember. We used to have a DVD of the making of. Right, right. We'll put them in the show notes. But but there is a photo that's really fun because Charlton Heston, I guess, frequently brought his son to work with him. Mm-hmm. And so can you imagine being a young tyke and seeing your dad all dressed up as a charioteer and getting on the getting on that chariot with the horses and all of that? It's it was pretty amazing. So you're reading Ben Hur. Yes, I. this is my second time with teenagers, and I'm reading it for my class, so we're going pretty slowly. And it's just, there's. I've read it several times, and I've done it with adult book groups, and kind of remotely with other people, and then a couple times with teenagers. And I was just thinking earlier today about how, when I read it with teenagers, it's a tough read. 
This was written in the, what, 1840s? So the language is tough. Plus he's writing deliberately old fashioned because he wants to make it seem ancient. And and so that's kind of complicated for the kids. But one difference that I think maybe makes them take it better is that they don't have any expectations. Mm. I think maybe Mm -hmm. a lot of adults have seen the movie or know something about it and kind of expect certain things from it. And then when you just dive into it and end up, you start in the part where the three wise men are getting together and going somewhere and talking weird and you don't know what's happening. It's boring right off the bat because you're going, where's the chariot races? <laughs> yes, exactly. The galley slave. Come on. Yeah. Wait, he, well, yeah, no, he no, just he got arrested. He has to be born. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> People don't understand that there's a subtitle to Ben-Hur, mm-hmm. Tale of the Christ. But even he, you know, when do we see the Christ? Hard, not much. Hardly at all. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been interesting for them. And I, I really just love making sure that the kids in my classes are exposed to the good old books. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one that everybody needs to read. This is not one you see on lists anymore. No. Yeah. Why not? Oh, no. It's excellent. And Tanya and Sarah, you guys have never read Ben-Hur, right? Am I right in remembering that? Yeah, I had read an abridged not exactly picture book, but kind of like a picture book mm. a version of it. So I have like the general outline of the story in my mind, but not not the book. Not the book itself. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Tanya, what about you? Yeah, I've never read it. I've always intended to. It's been on my to-do list. Will you will be this year. Years. <laughs> I know. Yes. <laughs> so exciting. Friends, we are going to do Ben-Hur this spring, I think I think it's May, that we're going to be doing Ben-Hur as the Plumfield Reads Book Club, and Tanya and Sarah are going to read with us then. So we're very excited about that. But Diane's just reading now because she's reading with her, with her students. I think one of the really interesting things to keep in mind if you are reading it and kind of getting bored with some of the language and some of the description is that Wallace wrote this like I said, in the mid 1800s, and he's describing the Holy Land and Antioch and the the galleys and all kinds of things without ever having seen them. He's mm. going from mm-hmm. really deep research that mm-hmm. how would you do that back then? Where do you go right. for all the books to find out what the Holy Land looked like and get an idea in your head of how to describe the desert and camels and things when you haven't seen any of that? No. And the people who read it hadn't done the, the research even. So he's trying to explain something he's never seen to people who've never seen it and be as accurate as possible. And it's really pretty amazing. I remember when I tried to read Lorna Doone the first time, and I said, gosh, there's just a lot of descriptive language in this. Like, do we really need this much information about that Glen? And and I remember you saying, Sarah, remember, it wasn't, these things weren't common to other people. It's not like it was easy to look those things up. So people very often use their novels as travel guides. Mm-hmm. It was their way of visiting another world. And yeah, they wanted all the details. They wanted to know what the tree looked like and where it was situated and, and what what county bordered it and what the landscape was like. And and we just, because we're so image saturated today, we don't, we fatigue easily on descriptive passages now, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. And just think, why do we need to know all this? Yeah. 
And maybe this is why book-to-movie conversions are so bad now, because the books lack the substance of description that the older ones do. So it wasn't hard for Peter Jackson to imagine what Tolkien was imagining. <laughs> Tolkien gave us a lot of description. Yeah. <laughs> but modern books don't have that. Yeah. Also, an interesting sort of connection is that the reason he ended up writing this was because he had had a conversation, I think in a train, with Robert yeah. Greene Ingersoll, who Gene Stratton Porter, in Keeper of the Bees, refers to as the greatest agnostic of his time. Oh. And so... I missed that. Yeah. I think it's Keeper of the Bees. It's one of hers. Um, mm -hmm. So Wallace and Ingersoll were having a conversation that made Wallace question everything he thought he believed. And so he went and started doing research and confirmed his beliefs and then shared them yeah. with everyone else by writing a story. So Now, I thought that it was that Wallace was an atheist when he began writing. I think that... And it was in the act of writing it that he was converted. I have heard that as well. And then this other story. So I don't know for sure exactly how that happened. Um, but I thought it was interesting that Ingersoll's name came into it. And I don't remember where I heard the part about him being converted while he was writing the story. But either way, he was mm -hmm. definitely solidifying his faith by looking up the details and doing all the research. Yes. So it's still powerful yes. because that's what he's trying to do then is show everybody else what he learned. And it's, it is such a remarkable book because he shows scripture such reverence by never misquoting scripture and by never putting words in Christ's mouth that weren't already there. Mm -hmm. And I think that we've talked about this in past in a past episode, but how important it is that these biblical stories don't imagine Christ to say something that he didn't say. Now, it's different for those of us who love the Chosen TV series because I think there's a different thing at work there. But what he was trying to strive for in Ben-Hur was credibility, that this was a story of Christ but that's why it's not told from Christ or his apostles' perspective, but told from this other character, right? Right. And he was trying to not be rejected by all of the religious people who didn't believe that novels were, they, they thought they Good were food. sinful. And so you certainly mm -hmm. weren't going to portray Jesus in a novel. And right. I think that works in a book. But then when you start trying to make movies about Jesus, it makes them a little stilted. Like, really? So all the stuff recorded in the New Testament is the only thing he ever said? <laughs> right. <Okay>. Exactly. <laughs> Thought he was fully human. <laughs> yeah. And he never had a night camping with his disciples and they never laughed about anything. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and he never ate except at the wedding in Cana and the Last Supper. Right. And only fish and bread. <laughs> yes. <laughs> with wine. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I'm really excited that you put Ben-Hur on your radar this year for your program because it motivated me to solidify that I want, really wanted to do Ben-Hur with my Tuesday Night Classics Club. And so we are finishing Kristen Lavenstrada right now. But at the very end of this month, we will begin Ben-Hur and we'll have that read by Easter, and uh, which is the, my favorite way to read Ben-Hur is to read it you know, in the winter months leading up to Easter. And I love to try to get to specific scenes that tie in with Holy Week on those days if possible. And then I 
have a bunch of teenagers that really enjoyed the teen book club that we did last summer, the parent teen book club. And so we're going to be doing Ben-Hur with a group of teenagers and their parents every other week. And then every other week, my Tuesday Night Classics Club will read the same reading. So I'll have the same discussion. I'll have the same section to read over a two-week period, and I'll discuss it one week with teenagers and the following week with the adults. And then we'll read the next section and teenagers and adults, teenagers and adults. And I am really looking forward to how different those conversations will be. And I love that Ben-Hur is good enough and strong enough that I'm not going to get sick of it doing it that way because it's just that good a story. (laughs) (laughs) So what else are you reading this month? I finally finished a book that I had had for several weeks from the library, and it's called A Woman of No Importance. Mm-hmm. And it was written in 2019 about a woman who was instrumental in the French resistance during World War II. And it's, it just, it took me a long time to read because it's really dense. It's not a novel. It's a biography or a story about this time period in her life and it's so complicated and you also have everybody's got a code name or two and there's Mm. there's you know these swirling Mm -hmm. complicated plots that they're trying to hold together like tom clancy (laughs) yeah except it's real (laughs) right right (laughs) so it's just i found it really interesting even though it took me a long time to get through it because the, the woman's name was Virginia Hall, and when she was young, she was very independent, and she didn't try to be a man, but she didn't understand why she couldn't do whatever she wanted to do, just like men do. Like a lot of the women mm-hmm. we read about, talk about, like Jean Stratton Porter or somebody, she didn't want to be a man. Right. She just thought she ought to be able to do Wanted certain to be things. able to do what she yeah. wanted to do. Yeah. So she was an American, but she ended up going to... Europe and living over there for most of her life for the next 20 years or so. But when she was, I think in her early 20s, she had a hunting accident and she never really liked to talk about it because she actually actually shot herself in the foot. Oh, ah. yeah. So this is in the 1920s and uh, I think it was 20s, but anyway, early enough that the book said even if it had happened now, it would have been bad and her mm-hmm. life would have been in danger. But it got infected and they ended up having to take her leg off. I, I think it was below Ooh. the knee. But so the next, you know, the, for the rest of her life, she had a wooden leg. Mm. And so all of the stuff she's doing, she's doing it with a wooden leg. With a wooden leg. Yeah. So not only. And that doesn't. That doesn't make her, like, stand out? Yeah, it does. So she has Um, to think of ways to explain it. Or she's learned, like, kind of a different walk so that it wouldn't be as obvious. And uh, Interesting. And she she was very tall for a woman and also very beautiful. So she did stand out. So she had to learn how to disguise herself. Um, So she worked for the foreign service for a long time, just as a secretary. And then, you know, that was really boring for her. But in uh, 1940, then she joined um, the French artillery and as an ambulance driver. So Mm -hmm. that was Mm -hmm. very exciting. But she eventually kind of 
inserted herself in France and started working with the resistance, which was almost non-existent at the time because they didn't have any way to get supplies. You know, they were occupied already by the Nazis. Um, They were totally unorganized, just little cell groups trying to do stuff, but they didn't really have anybody to help them do it. And she came in with just some amazing organizational skills and a personality that was powerful enough that she could recruit people better than anybody else. Mm. And she just had like a the magnetism of her personality helped hold her groups together. But she could coordinate all the stuff that was going on secretly and keep, you know, not tell anybody about this one, but know what everyone else was doing and keep track of it all and Amazing. run everything. And, but through the whole thing, as much as she had to do with all of these, nobody ever paid much attention to her or acknowledged what she was doing because she wasn't a man. Mm. Right. Right. So in some way she liked that because she didn't want people to draw attention to her because that's how you die. Right. But at other times right. she was very frustrated because she didn't have any actual power to, to no right. command. So she always had to be right. like under some man who didn't know what he was doing. Mm. And a lot of them would go into the countries and be reporting back. They're actually being handled and, and um, working through London. So that's, they're getting all of their supplies from England and needing radio operators and because they didn't have any way of communicating quickly. So mm. some, they would insert a man who was supposed to be in charge and he would go and report that he was doing all these wonderful things. And then later find out he really, really wasn't accomplishing anything, but she was. Mm. So I, it was just, it was really interesting though dense (laughs) because she's over there like she's at this for six years oh wow yeah and it's she not very many people lived that long in this but she learned how to just you know compartmentalize she moved a lot she um Mm. knew when it was time to get out Mm-hmm. One of the things she did was um, after she'd been in a certain place for two or three years, she just knew she had to leave. And the only way to get out of France was to go over the Alps into Spain. And she walked. Oh. And it was the, the, the trip was one that the guides would only take people on. They would say, here's what we're doing. If you can't keep up too bad. Right. We're going to leave you. Behind. So she went with two mm-hmm. men and she was more of a man than the other two. They all made it. But, I mean, she's on foot, keeping up mm-hmm. in snow. With a wooden leg. Yeah, in the wintertime, getting over, over these mm-hmm. mountain passes with a wooden leg. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> How old was she? Um, well, she started in her During early period. 20s, 20s and 30s. Yeah, so interesting. On Amazon, part of the description says that in 1942, the Gestapo sent out an urgent transmission. She is the most dangerous of all allied spies. We must find and destroy her. Mm-hmm. So fascinating. And I love this part, too, where it says the target in their sights was Virginia Hall, a Baltimore socialite who talked her way into special operations executive. The spy organization dubbed Winston Churchill's, quote, Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think her story is fascinating. And my question is similar 
to the last time we discussed a very dense book that you had read. <laughs> yes. That was more. Is there a picture book for this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the picture book biography? <laughs> well, we might have to work on that. Yeah. Um, there is a story about her um, that looks like it's for um, younger readers called The Spy with the Wooden Leg, the story of Virginia Hall that was published in 2012. Oh. oh. So it, it's 150-ish pages, mm-hmm. and it looks as if it's more of a living type I think story. I was told in a novel. Bought that one actually. I think I just. I think I after our conversation because I know Diane mentioned this before, and so she had just started it, and I think I went and bought it. Um, Greta could tell us for sure because I thought this sounds like something we all need. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love these stories of these lesser known people in history that yeah made a big impact. Did yeah made a big impact mm-hmm. and did such powerful things. Every year at Christmas, the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square, which is formerly known as the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, they put on this huge Christmas concert and they invite a guest to sing and present. And it's it's really phenomenal. And they've had guests like Walter Cronkite and Kristen Chenoweth and wow. just amazing people. So my parents had watched it this last year and um, I can't think of the name of the man who was uh, narrating or the guest host, but he shared a story of this man during World War II who basically got 600 plus children out of Poland. Oh, and it's really miraculous the one story. That's the movie? The one that's coming out as a movie? I don't know. <laughs> With Anthony Hopkins? I was, is it? I don't know because it's amazing. And then Sarah Kim was telling me there's, is there a picture book, Sarah? That she just put on Biblio Guides. Yeah, and I, I read it last summer and I added it to Biblio Guides. Because it's it, the, we're talking about the guy who he goes to the British BBC TV studio and he's on the show and they turn to him and tell him that the woman sitting next to him is one of the children that he mm-hmm. rescued and turns out the yes, whole studio him. is. Yeah. <laughs> there is a biography about him called Nicholas Winton and the Rescued Generations. Okay. Stars of the Night, The Courageous Children of the Czech Kinder Transport is the picture book. It was released in 2023. And also there is a picture book about Virginia Hall. It's called Virginia Was a Spy and was released in 2020. Oh, so after this one. Then, Sarah, there's a picture book that Amazon is recommending called The Light That Shines Forever, The True Story and Remarkable Rescue of 669 Children on the Eve of World War II. Oh, yeah. That one was released also 2023. Yeah. Good. Wow. Good stuff. (laughs) There's so many stories and it's so beautiful that they can. I mean, I love that Diane is going and reading these really dense, really meaty books and bringing them back to (laughs) us. So that you can find the picture books. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Oh, my gosh. There's another picture book called Nikki and Vera. A Quiet Hero of the Holocaust and the Children He Rescued. What? Yeah, girls, okay. we're going to have to get on top of this. Okay. Yes. Well, I think, I mean, it's just a light. So obviously, a lot of people were inspired by his story once it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, the the when he was on TV, it wasn't that long ago. It was in the 90s when he was on TV, but maybe the yeah, story so just didn't spread. But then it was on right. YouTube. And for years, I would see it show up like once a year in my Facebook feed because there's a YouTube of it. And it was just, I sob every time I watched it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I remember seeing that at some time or other, too. So we'll definitely link 
the real BBC broadcast. And we'll link the trailer for the movie and we'll link the we will link also to the Tabernacle Choir concert and we'll link to all the picture books, but we haven't read all of them yet, friends. So but by the time this airs, maybe we will have. <laughs> this is exciting. Yeah. Yay for happy so we'll rabbit go- trails. <laughs> And because Sarah saw that there was one about Virginia Hall called Virginia Was a Spy. Yes. We'll go check that one out as well. I don't like the cover of it very much. I didn't like the Grace Banker well, one either. It, it, they're just getting so, it's so modern looking. When I don't understand why you would do that for something that happened in the early 1900s. I, I like the cover of Virginia Was a My Spy. My library has it, so I'm going to request it. Oh, thank you, sir. Actually, now that I'm looking at it, it has a more real feel to it. Yeah, it doesn't. It's not exactly a cartoon. Mm. It looks like a sketch. And she has sort of a masculine face, which, I don't know, maybe that's what it's supposed to be. Dang. I can show you real pictures of her. <laughs> yeah, we should no, put she real pictures She in. was strikingly beautiful. Well, this cover, she kind of is too, but just yeah. very strong mm-hmm. features. Yes. She was just strong-willed mm-hmm. all around and she controlled, you know. Yeah, that's probably really mm-hmm. accurate. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the cover. Sounds but interesting. One of oh. the reasons that you haven't ever heard of her is that even after the war, she was um, one of the first women to join the CIA, uh, is that she still wouldn't talk about what she did or let other people do it around her because mm. I think she, she hadn't done it to be famous, but she right. also was so just steeped in the idea of if you talk, you die that she yeah. just didn't want to talk about what she had done. And there were um, people still left when she, um, do you, do you know who Klaus Barbie was? No. Oh, really, really bad Nazi who was um, just horrendously cruel and sadistic. Mm. She Mm. was on his radar as, like, enemy number one. We got to find her. Well, after the Mm. war, the United States actually helped him escape from, uh, you know, the trials because they were using him to find other information. Oh, good Lord. And there had also been a man who was in her circle who was a, a double agent who got a lot of her friends killed, and he didn't get mm. caught until after the war. And I think she just never really, it was a long time before she could relax, even though the war was over, and she just didn't want to talk about it. Hmm. Well, also, some of the stuff just isn't declassified, and she, you're not allowed mm-hmm. to. Right. The book doesn't mention mm-hmm. that most of what she actually did is still classified. She was decorated by the United States. While this author was doing her research, she also discovered that Virginia must have been awarded the Croix de Guerre with Palm from France, but nobody oh. even knew about it. Hmm. She just didn't tell. Interesting. Because that's not why she was doing it. I think, well, and I think there's also, that came up in the story of this, the other gentleman we were just discussing. Mm-hmm. He, his wife found his papers in the attic and said, like in the nineties and said, what, what, what is this? And he never <laughs> thought to tell, he wasn't keeping it a secret per se. And I think part of it was there's a humility there mm-hmm. of maybe not thinking that what you did was so amazing or, and again, these were trying times. Maybe there was just also not wanting to relive it. Mm-hmm. Or I just, I think there'd be a complication of a lot of different 
emotions around the experiences mm-hmm. as well. Well, and I, I find think, it fascinating. I think a lot of times, especially you see this in the trailer for the movie about Nicholas Winter, that he he felt enormous grief that he could not get out more. So he didn't feel that what he had done was good. He felt like it was inadequate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with Virginia, mm-hmm. she lost so many people for various reasons. And a lot of it she felt responsible for. Yeah. Because yeah. they were her plans that people were trying to implement. And most of the time she couldn't have right. done anything about it. But um, Just there's still some of them she was really close to. She did engineer an amazing escape from a prison early on in the whole thing they were really badly in need of um, radio operators and so the um, British had brought in about a dozen of them and there was somebody betrayed them and they all got arrested well she never re- she couldn't rest until she got them out of prison because of course they're being mm-hmm. tortured and, and things like that so mm-hmm. anyway mm-hmm. she did she finally managed to get all of them out of there and it was just really something that hadn't ever been done wow. before Wow. So she was the um, only civilian woman during the Second World War to be awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for extraordinary heroism against the enemy. I'm just shaking my head, you know, Mm -hmm. because I do not doubt her meritorious behavior at all. I I don't want to diminish that at all. I just wonder how many women did do really courageous things during the war. There's just no cross awarded to them. There's no Mm -hmm. record of it. Mm -hmm. Well, and a lot of them, because they, de- they died. Right. Because, <laughs> right. of course, right. she did have many women helping her. Right. And a lot of them went to prison mm-hmm. and, and suffered a lot of torture, and many of them didn't survive. Uh, I think that's one reason she didn't necessarily want all the accolades, is that she knew she hadn't done it by herself. Right, 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 right. Well, I am... Um, reading a World War II book right now as well. And I just, uh, it's one that I think all of us have read. Sarah, you've read Resistance, right? No, I haven't read it yet. You haven't read it yet. Okay. I am rereading Jennifer Nielsen's Resistance because this Saturday, my library is hosting a teen book club. And I will say it reads really, really differently the second time. The first time I was entranced by the plot and I kind of was totally fine with how really YA it is, um, which is not always a compliment. Um, And this time I'm like, okay, whiny teenagers. Oh my goodness gracious. Could we have any more drama? (laughs) Um, That said, I still find the book to be very, very compelling. And I'm very excited because originally you and I had thought we will do a packet for resistance and then we thought well we won't because it's a lot of we're doing a lot of things like it and our time might be better spent to do something else but since I'm doing so much in order to prepare for my own book club and I have a vision for how I'd like to do this packet and that it would be different um, I really want this one to be maps like where all the concentration camps were where all the ghettos were the timeline. I really like timelines for these kinds of historical fiction novels. And so I'm really having fun with the bits and pieces of resistance. And I'm looking forward to capturing all of that and turning it into a packet because what has been very interesting for me has been that so many of the moms have messaged me. Many, many, many of my moms have gone and gotten resistance on Audible for themselves 
because they were trying to make the determination which age specifically does is my 12-year-old ready for this kind of thing. And um, all of them are saying, you know, they're listening to it on the treadmill, they're listening to it while they fold laundry, and they're saying how gripping it is and how compelling it is. And it is really, it's kind of a different World War II story. The resistance in Poland is not something we we read a lot about or study a lot. So the moms are really, really interested in coming to this book club as well. So I find that to be pretty exciting that this is one that would maybe make a wonderful parent-teen book club discussion um, because this one is not action-based. It's it's really about all of the moral dilemmas that happen in every single encounter. Do we give our food to those women who are basically the living dead? Will our food do any good there? We only have so much food to give. Do we throw that grenade into the cafe because doesn't the Lord prohibit the killing of others? Is it killing? Is it defense? Is it murder? Which is it? And so there's so many moral questions in resistance that I think it's one that your teenagers would be safe to read it, moms, but I don't think I would turn them loose on it without you reading it as well. I think this is one that you're not going to want to miss the opportunity to discuss this one with them and to ponder some of these questions yourself. I do, though, really, I'm suffering this time in reading it because I'm no longer reading it from Haya's perspective and and following the story through her because I know what happens. Now I'm noticing all the secondary characters and the question that's haunting me as I read this is, how, how would I be any different than all those women in the ghetto? How, do I, how would I live every day knowing that there's no life to live? How do you live without hope? And Diane, you and I talked about this in our meeting yesterday. And you made the great point that as Christians, we live with a kind of hope that sustains you through these horrible, horrible situations. Mm -hmm. And it is really different than those who live without hope. And I am not saying anything about what our Jewish brothers and sisters do or do not have hope in, because many, many, many of the Jews still clung to their hope and hope in our, their hope in God and their love of God. So I'm saying, as I contemplate what it must have been like to be a mother in the ghetto, I find that to be a spiritual exercise. So this book, and interesting, one of the moms who's reading said, Sarah, I think we need to do a Bible study with this book. Not not resistance, reading resistance. I think we need to get all those moms together and we need to offer them this other study, this spiritual mm, study. Wow. Because these are some of the questions that are being asked and we uh-huh. should do something with mm. that. So I thought that was really interesting. So this month I'm reading Resistance again, and we'll have a packet for that, God willing, this winter. And um, I'm reading, getting ready to read Ben-Hur, and I'm finishing up Kristen Lavenstrader. And I don't talk a lot in our reading life about what we're reading in our Tuesday night club, because we haven't always been reading very fast or things like that. But um, right now we're reading the third book of Kristen Lavenstrader, which has three books inside of it. We're reading the middle book of the third book this week. And then in two weeks we finish. And there's a lot of moral questions I'm wrestling with as I read Kristen again. And I, I do love Kristen Lavenstrader. It is a hard 
beautiful, rich, challenging book. I love it. I recommend it, but I definitely recommend you do it as a book club. Don't do it alone. <laughs> it's, it's really hard. Alone. Not for the faint of heart. <laughs> Not for the faint of heart. So other than that, I've been doing a lot of fun little bit of reading. I'm very excited that Anthony is republishing uh, the um, what he's calling the America's Children series, and I put up a couple of reviews today on those, and I'm looking forward to reading more of those at lunch um, because they're lovely and really, really great for history. But that's really kind of what I'm getting. That's what I'm after this month. So, so I just want to say I am really thrilled to hear that you have decided to do a packet because I've I heard you that we're be. making one. We're not making one. We're making one. We're not making one. <laughs> and I've just been quiet, just waiting for the dust to settle because I, you know, I knew that you were also doing a book club for it. Yeah. But I, I think it's, it's a hard book, and I know you were doing quite a few World War II, yeah. and so it's hard to. Stay in that. Maintain staying in that space. Yeah. You know, I was doing a project working on slave narratives. Yeah. And I was reading excerpts from so many. And I was reading their, the actual narratives, some adaptations, some picture book adaptations. And finally, Sarah came to me and said, it's time for you to stop. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's time for you to be done. I'm going to need you to Good job, no, Sarah. no more. Um, because my heart can weigh so heavy. I tend to be incredibly empathetic. And almost live in those spaces. Right. And yes. I, I start to be very weighed down. Mm-hmm. And um, it's great to learn empathy. We want our children to learn empathy. And stories should help us develop empathy. That's right. But sometimes um, we also don't want a world of depressed people <laughs> yes. who cannot function. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, it, and when we're really deep into these, it, it really takes up residence in your mind at heart. Like you just... You can't mm-hmm. escape because you're re- everything else you're reading is impacting how you're reading that one. So it's mm-hmm. like a symphony of suffering. And I just, yeah, at some point we have to put the baton down and stop conducting that. <laughs> Goes, yeah. <laughs> what were you going to say, Diane? When I was reading about Virginia Hall, I would catch myself every once in a while feeling like someone was probably watching me. Oh, And then yes. he'd be careful yes. about who I talked to or what I said or where I went or how I did it. <laughs> Just you know, a few yeah. seconds every once in a while, I thought, oh my gosh, I need to finish this book. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and you know, right now I am rereading for comfort. I found that a chicken soup book for me apparently is, you know, 700 pages of blackout and then the sequel all clear, even though we are reading those as a book club in June and July. And I just read them last summer. That is my present to myself. I read a little blackout every night and I'm almost done with blackout and I'll go to all clear. Because that is a World War II story, and I'm heavy into World War II right now, but it's so hopeful. It's I was telling mm-hmm. Diane the other day, it, in certain ways it reminds me of Guernsey and the Literary Potato Peel Pie Society. And it's lively, and it's fun, and still the suffering is present, and still the World War II themes are there, but the shop girl experience is just completely different than the Holocaust experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's all I'm reading right now. So, Sarah, what about you? What are you reading this month? So, um, I did read quickly um, or listen to the recording of Beowulf. Quan has been reading it, and he's reading the Burton Raphael translation. But I listened to the Seamus Haney because uh, he narrates it himself. Oh, and yes. it was delightful. But I do want to say it is abridged, which I don't know why they chose to do that. Beowulf is not like a super long story. No. 
So that was disappointing. I wish it was the whole thing. But why did he consent? I was to reading it? it just to make sure I, I, you know, knew more about it than I did for for Kwanu reading through it this term. But right. um, so it's delightful, and I wish they would have done the whole thing. Yeah. It's just what I wanted to share about that. <laughs> um. <laughs> Sarah, have you and guys then, ever yeah. done um, *The Boys of Blur* by N.D. Wilson? No, Kwanu tried a couple of his books, but that was a number of years ago, and and didn't want to continue. Totally understandable, but Boys of Blur is Beowulf. Yeah, I've heard that. So maybe that would be a good follow up. I could ask him if he'd be interested. Because yeah. he's older now and he's different. It would be a different. Mm-hmm. Pr- knowing Beowulf, I think Boys of Blur goes from being like a weird thing to like, oh, I see what he's doing there. So. Yeah, because it's mm-hmm. not Beowulf retold, it's Beowulf happening no. again. Because you yes. never really it, kill evil. No. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Beowulf revived. Mm-hmm. in florida which is kind of like the story right like you, the very beginning like you the monster's killed and then oh he has a mother mm-hmm. and then oh later at the end like there's a dragon right mm-hmm. like it's, it's like it, yeah it keeps mm-hmm. coming back that's right that's right yeah <laughs> interesting so what else <laughs> um so I also listened to the Push Cart War. Yay! Sherry early recommended that to all of us. And when you pointed out it was free on Audible, I was like, oh, yay. <laughs> you got that's my book. <laughs> oh, darn it. I wish I had done it. I was like, I have to finish Resistance. I can't jump on this yet. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you about the other two really quick, and then we can talk about the Push Cart War. With, okay. With awesome. Tanya. Awesome. So, um the other one I wanted to just share, this is a really short book that I read because I've been cataloging the anthology contents of... <laughs> Hi, Yuna. <laughs> that was Yuna. I've been, record- um, I've been cataloging the contents of the Best in Children's anthology. Yay! And in volume 16, there was a book um, that was in there in full called The Best Birthday. And it takes place um, in San Francisco, and I'm from the Bay Area, and um, the, it's about a seven-year-old boy, and his grandmother lives in Berkeley, and that's, like, right next door to me, practically. Mm. And so I was like, oh, I, I really want to read this whole story. So it's about a seven-year-old boy, and it's almost Christmas, and his parents are there, so they're about to have a new baby. Okay. And he knows they're about to have a new baby. Um, but he expects the baby to come after Christmas. Everybody does. Um, well, he wakes up Christmas morning and his parents are not there. Oh. And there's a woman there to take care of him. And they've gone to the hospital because the mom's about to have the baby. He's all upset. And he had been asking for Christmas for a second hamster. I think it's a <laughs> hamster. Um, and so he decides to run away to his grandma's house. And he takes his one hamster. He goes to down to the shore, like he rides the trolley and then he gets on the ferry to take the ferry over the bay to to Berkeley, hits a storm. And um, it was just fascinating because it was written in the 60s, but it takes place in the 20s. Oh, and um, so he the author, I think it's Quail Hawkins is the author. Um, He wrote it, he said, for like the teachers of San Francisco to kind of like show a little bit of the history of the city. And um, it's a delightful story. Like he ends up coming back. People are helping him, but also not like not like today where like if a seven year old was like wandering through the city and like talking to the trolley man or like the the person who runs the ferry, like they're going to be calling the cops. They're not going to be like, 
was being kind to him yeah. and you know like <laughs> so um <laughs> it all turns out great in the end and it, it was just a delightful little oh, story so fun. if you have best in children's they're very common you can easily typically yeah. find them cheap online or at library sales uh volume 16 has that delightful story and i think it's actually also on internet archive oh i have to see if we have so. that volume I'm slowly yeah. but surely gathering them wherever I find them, whenever Tanya has found them for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I'll just briefly mention this one book. I'm not done yet, so maybe we'll talk about it more next time. But um, after we uh, were talking about kind of history and like what impacts history, I started listening to Napoleon's hemorrhoids oh. and other small events that changed history. <laughs> <laughs> like Hitler having a migraine and that's why he missed D-Day. Yes. yes. It's been really... So I have to listen to it in chunks because it's very um, fast paced and I just can't like keep all the information in my head. Right. I feel like I'm just like losing everything as I'm listening. Right. But because it's just like trivia after trivia of like all these small little things that happened that have influenced history, which are kind of fascinating. I'll just I just wanted to share one of them. Yeah. So apparently in 19, I think it was 61, the U.S. Air Force was transporting a bomb, a hydrogen bomb, mm. and the plane broke apart and it landed in North Carolina and it did what it was supposed to do, but five of the six safety features failed. Oh. And it was only one single little switch that prevented this bomb from exploding. Oh my gosh. It was 2,000 times more powerful than the bomb we dropped on Hiroshima <gasps> and Nagasaki. Oh my goodness. I was just like, what in the world? <laughs> and we don't know this. Like, nobody knows. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Crazy, right? right? Like, wow. 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 Yeah. <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> yeah. And there's all kinds of things in there. A little bit like James yeah, Burke's Connections books, right? Like these just mm -hmm. little snippets of fascinating things you don't know about. And mm -hmm. yeah. Like how many times Winston Churchill was almost assassinated oh. and like various, like all just mm. kinds of interesting things. There talks about sports and history, like, you know, politics and wars and just all kinds of different areas. So cool. <laughs> it's kind of fun. Oh, I can't wait to hear more next month. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Tanya, you read The Pushcart War. Well, I started it okay. because Sherry had been mentioning it to all of us and said how much she loved it. Right. And she went on and on, on about it. And then she said, but if you guys read it and you don't like it. Don't tell me. Don't speak to <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, I don't want to know. <laughs> don't say anything. Keep it to yourselves. Don't write any reviews. Put nothing out there in the world. And she just talked about it being really humorous and completely delightful. Yeah. So I do own it. So I grabbed it and I started it. And it sounds like Sarah finished it. But yeah. I just thought because sometimes um, we talk a lot of heavy books yeah. and meaty books. Yeah. But not always humor. <laughs> and since it's an election year, oh. I thought this was appropriate. Appropriate. <laughs> yeah. And kind of funny. So... Um, the very first chapter, I think I thought this was a real story. <laughs> and the very first chapter starts with the pushcart war started on the afternoon of March 15th, 1986, when a truck ran down a pushcart belonging to a flower peddler. And so it's about it's a set in New York City. And it's basically this battle between these big trucks and the peddlers. Oh, and I thought, oh, this is probably a real thing, except this book was written in the 60s. Right. So I'm just going to say, didn't she say this is her favorite <laughs> book of 1964? Yes. Yeah. yes. It, it is written entirely like a 
historical document not even like a just like a fictional story but like the amount of detail they wow. put in there for like listing like the telephone or yeah telephone directory of like all the different <laughs> like the letter p for the pushcart peddlers was like 50 things long like it's just like like they're giving you all this data of like what yeah. happened during this historical event <laughs> that hasn't happened it's completely made up <laughs> oh that's charming <laughs> yeah. so you go from this person saw and sa- said this and then unbeknownst to this person over across town this other thing was happening here and then there were the big three which were the um the truck owners and it gives you this whole <laughs> idea of basically these big business and how their meeting was exposed, because obviously if this was a real event, like you wouldn't just know about a secret meeting, but like this is how like yeah, somebody leaked found it. out about <laughs> it and told it, right? Like, mm-hmm. Oh, fun. So it, it's hilarious. It's laugh out loud hilarious. Oh, yay. But one of the chapters is called The Peanut Butter Speech. And I just want to read you an excerpt because I just think it's so funny. <laughs> It says, one of the first people to speak out against the growing danger was a man named Archie Love. Archie Love was running for mayor at the time, and he promised to reduce the number of trucks in the streets. It looked briefly as if Archie Love might be elected on the strength of this promise alone. But that was before Archie's opponent, Emmett P. Cudd, who was already the mayor and did not want to lose his job, made his famous peanut butter speech in Union Square. Mayor Cudd repeated the peanut butter speech 90 times in one week. It went more or less as follows, quote, (laughs) Friends and New Yorkers, New York is one of the biggest cities in the USA. We are proud of that fact. What makes a city big? Big business, naturally. And what is the difference between big business and small business? It is this. If you order 14 cartons of peanut butter, you are running a small business. If you order 400 cartons of peanut butter, you are running a big business. 14 cartons of peanut butter, you can get delivered in a station wagon. But for 400 cartons of peanut butter, you need a truck. And you need a big truck. Big truck means progress. My opponent, Archie Love, is against trucks. He is therefore against progress. Maybe He is even against peanut butter. (laughs) Naturally, all the truck drivers voted to reelect Mayor Cudd, and so did a lot of other people. Very few people wanted to be against progress. Mm -hmm. No one wanted to be against peanut butter. (laughs) And everyone wanted to be proud of their city because they always had been. Thus, Archie Love did not get elected, and the trucks kept getting bigger. I laughed so hard when it said nobody wanted to be against peanut butter. (laughs) (laughs) It's so quirky and so funny. She talks about like writing it so that young people would know about how wars get started. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like a big guy against a little guy kind of story, but also just fascinating look at, I don't know, politics and how people gather and um, work together and how people try propaganda. to manipulate other people yeah propaganda power of the and... soundbite apparently because that speech yeah. who wants to be against peanut butter <laughs> <laughs> i thought the speech that's a- really highlighted a lot of things that we see in not just politics but when people want to persuade a, per- a group yep. of people to think a particular way yeah the tactics that were used in that speech you could analyze that speech. i was gonna say it would be a wonderful accompaniment to a rhetoric program right if you're studying mm-hmm. rhetoric here's a speech to Let's break this apart. 
it's really well done mm-hmm. in a way that's so accessible for a younger reader. And that's how the majority of the chapters go. When you kind of break it down, you think, oh, that, as an adult, interesting. <laughs> that's really showing at a very basic level, but not in a way that you're talking down. None of this was dumbed down. Right. No, clearly, that language does not sound unsophisticated. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So it's fun. Just, it's just been really humorous so far. So, Sarah, you finished it, though. I mean, without spoilers. Yes. You, I thought it was great. What? Okay. Yeah. And how's the yeah, audio? I thought it was great. Um, It's good. I liked it. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. The... It's fun to see how the push cart, uh, push cart. I don't know if you call them like a union, but they all get together, right? There's like 500 push carts in the city and they, they all get together and come up with strategies. They appoint a, and I think she's in her eighties, like an older woman. She becomes like the general and, uh, have a strategy of how they're going to get rid of the truck and, you know, the things that happen and, um, some people end up in jail and I don't know, it's, 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 it's good. <laughs> oh, this sounds very refreshing, like a good brain break. Perfect. Well, perfect when you're not having like a book hangover and you need something just joltingly different and funny. Light and funny. Mm-hmm. There was also a scene where they're discussing the New Yorkers themselves. People are trying to figure out why is the traffic so bad? Mm. And everyone's blaming everyone else. Mm-hmm. So some people are blaming the truckers and some people like the taxi cabs blame all the people who are driving in their own cars. Right. Because if they would just use taxi cabs, there would be less private cars and there'd be more space on the street. And the private drivers are blaming the taxi cabs and the bus drivers are blaming both the taxi cabs and the personal drivers. Because if both of you got off the street and we all just got on buses, then we'd have more room. (sighs) And so it's just funny how every group sees how they aren't the problem, but everybody else is the problem if they would only do X, Y, Z. So and it's done in a really humorous way where also you're thinking, yeah, that's how that goes down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a really fun book club book. You know, have every how to come mm-hmm. in and identify. Are you a trucker? Are you a taxi cab driver? What are you? I know. I'm That'd sitting here so thinking, fun. maybe I have to change my plan for the rest of my class this year. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> what age would you say this is just perfect for? Ten? Enough? Yeah, I would I would say 10 and I was and like 4th, 5th, 6th grade. It seems like that'd be super fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, so yeah. fun. I love it. <laughs> well, I'm, and friends, it is free on Audible, which is kind of amazing. Um oh. it's in, if you have an Audible membership, it's included in your membership. And so we can tell Sherry that she doesn't need to avoid listening to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let her know the good news. <laughs> and friends, if you don't know who we're talking about, we're talking about Sherry Early of Marriott.com School Library and also from Our Librarian Life and the card catalog. So it was one of Sherry's recommendations to us when we were talking about 1964 and some of the fun books in 1964. Yay. Tanya, do you have anything else you're reading this month that you want to talk about? I just have one last thing that I've been working on. I was just sharing it with Sarah this morning. Mm. So part of my wonder club Mm -hmm. that I was talking about on the state of the podcast, I was just um, one of the moms that I work with. We were thinking about how do we help children start thinking about mindset and having a success mindset Mm -hmm. and overcoming failure and things like that. And we know that stories have a powerful way of doing that. Right. And one of the things we're doing is we are reading about great lives. Mm -hmm. So, of course, we're looking at George Washington and Joan of Arc and the people that we want to make sure that we bring those stories to the children. But we were kind of thinking, well, 
we want more than that still. Mm-hmm. And I'm so in love with picture book biographies. Yeah. Like, just, huh? you know, you, yeah. you know, I'm so smitten with them. Yeah, you're not wrong. I that. know, right? <laughs> and so we're kind of, we're setting aside a portion of time to, I guess my idea, I'm still working this idea out, but I do want to share it because I think I'm going to actually share it and create a list. Mm. But I want to be talking about famous failures, mm-hmm. people who struggled mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. and overcame and and struggled m- multiple times, right? Like Thomas Edison. So Thomas Edison is always the one that everyone thinks right. of, right? Right. 10,000 failures before he had a success. And I think he is the standard right. in a lot of ways of the of someone that we might look to. But there's so many other people that we don't and know about. And he's not super relatable also. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> But there's so many other lesser known people and there's biographies, picture book biographies that you could do in 10 minutes or 15 minute reading, as well as maybe doing a growth mindset activity, like talking about, you know, an I can attitude versus I can't, or I can do hard things versus I'm not capable, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Those types, types of mindsets. So I was looking for picture book biographies and one of the ones that I came across that I forgot that Sarah and I had discussed, and we were discussing it this morning, is about, we're going to call him Mr. Honda, because I don't know how to pronounce his first name. (laughs) And this is the man that basically created the Honda company. But his story is incredible. He wasn't good at school, Mm -hmm. so he didn't go to school. Mm -hmm. He tells a story of seeing his first Model T Mm -hmm. in the early... 20th century and had never seen a car before and was so engaged by it mm. that he decided one day he wanted to build a car himself. Oh. So he kind of had setback after setback after setback, but he just persisted mm-hmm. and kept going and became, I mean, Honda. Honda. Right. <laughs> he became Honda. So <laughs> there's so many uh, Honda cars in the world today, yeah. right? And Honda motorcycles. And it talks about how during World War II, he was creating propellers for the army. And then after that, that wasn't needed. Japan was devastated. Economically, no one was buying cars. And he was either needing to do the train and he hated the train Mm -hmm. or ride a bicycle. And so he decided, well, can I motorize this? Mm -hmm. And started creating these motorcycles. Mm. And he built something off of that and then later went to cars as well. Anyway, so it's just this really incredible story. So I'm putting together kind of a list of specifically stories where someone had a growth mindset, where they've had these setbacks that they really pushed through and kept overcoming because they had a goal and a dream. We're just going to bring in people from all around the world through these picture book biographies and just start sharing their stories of persistence and overcoming. And I'm kind of calling it failing forward that you're never like that. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) That's great. So it's just one of the things I've always talked to my children about. We're always moving forward, right? You're, you're either moving towards something or you're, you're kind of dying, you're regressing. Mm -hmm. And when you have a failure, you won't start at the same place you were before you had that failure. You start a little bit more forward. And so when we can start to look at failures that way, and of course, not compare ourselves to other people, we can have success and and find joy in a lot of ways, because we don't let that failure debilitate us. Well, and the more that we practice failing, the more comfortable we become taking risks, because we know what it is to fail. mm -hmm. And we realize that failure is not the end. And so if we can practice that a lot, even if it's practicing it vicariously through a picture book biography, it's a really great way to develop the stamina to try things. 
knowing that trying in and of itself can be virtue. It absolutely is. I love it. This particular book, I was kind of sad because my library did not have it and it's not on Internet Archive, but there is a YouTube video of someone reading the story. So very well done. Yay. Where it's just, you know how sometimes people are holding the book back, kind of like you're at storytelling time and you can't really see the pictures and whatnot. This one is just the pictures take up the whole screen and you can just hear the narration of it. The narration of it. Nice. And and then I was, I thought, okay, yes, I love this story. <laughs> so good. So oh, I that's love it. What I've been working on and what I've been reading, picture book biographies, totally my jam. Yay. Well, next month I'm going to tell you all about our scholastic book project, which doesn't sound very exciting, but it's been super fun for us because we've been spending tons of time reading picture books. But I'll tell you about that next month because Ooh, exciting. picture books are awesome. <laughs> they are. <laughs> I love them. And I'm just another plug. Picture book biographies are for all ages. Amen. Hey, a great picture book is for all ages. <laughs> it really is. And for anybody that's watching the Bass Reeves miniseries. I haven't started yet. Okay. I haven't either because Judd's previewing it mm-hmm. because I often can't handle too much certain elements Mm -hmm. but I had read the picture book biography about Bass Reeves to my family and Judd paused the show and came and got me and he said hey there's a scene that's in the picture book (laughs) that's in the movie you got to come in here and watch this it's so good yes and so and he previewed it for me we went in and we watched this 15 minute I think it's about a 15 minute scene that had been directly in the picture book and it was well done in both places sure cool well then you're gonna also need to read the gift of black folk because he's on the cover oh is that him on the cover Mm -hmm. oh i didn't know that Mm -hmm. on jill's cover on jill's cover Mm -hmm. oh i you know what i i really 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 love bass reeves what a phenomenal me too i'm excited i'm excited we just i'm excited to get started on it Did you read Gary Paulson's Bass Reeves? I haven't yet, what? but I plan Gary to. Gary Paulson has a Bass yes. Reeves? Oh, my. Mm-hmm. Fun. It's a it's a sh- chapter book. Right. But it, yeah, it's not real long. Yeah. I'm going to because I just, I love Bass well, Reeves. This would be a good so conversation for February. All right. Yay. Well, I'm excited to hear more um, of what everybody's reading next month. And maybe now we're all going to read a little Bass Reeves between now and next month as well. But I'm especially excited to check out all those picture books about Diane's because I just think Me too. female spy <laughs> in World War II, right? I just think this is going to be really good. Really good thing. Because when you have a shelf of World War II books, it's predominantly men. And I'm fine with that because the, the men are the ones who did the vast mm-hmm. majority of the fighting. But it's really nice for our girls to see that there are lots of ways in which their contributions matter as well. Tanya and Sarah and Yuna, thanks for joining us. It was lovely (laughs) chatting with you about books. (laughs) Ladies, thank you so much for joining us again. Friends, this is our 12th episode. So next month is the one year anniversary of our reading life. Uh, Who's making cake? Somebody needs to bring cake. Um, I'd rather have cookies. Can I I do the cookies? Yeah, let's okay. me too. Yeah. Oh, okay, How about good. I get one of my kids to make cookies and send them? That would be great. Mm-hmm. Please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, friends, it's such a such a privilege and an honor to have you listening to us. We are, I think it's worth noting that while we were sleeping this month, we hit 50,000 downloads, which we think is great. And so we appreciate 
how often you listen and we appreciate it when you share this. And we love when you go and start reading some of the books we're talking about and then come find us and chat with us about that. We find that particularly delightful. So to that end, come find us, come chat with us. You can find us on social media, both Instagram and Facebook. Also, our favorite place to hang out is the BiblioGuides online community, which is a mighty network. So you can come over there too to find us. All of that is in the show notes. So friends, we hope that you are having a great time reading. We'd love to know what you're reading this month. And if you know of more picture books that connect with the chapter books we talk about, we always want to know. So make sure that you let us know. Either tag us or comment or send us a message because we really do think that picture books are a wonderful opportunity for all of us to sample an idea the life of a person, you know, some kind of moment in history gives us the opportunity to enter into a topic and decide whether or not we want to be reading bigger, more substantial books on the same topic. So friends, until next time. <laughs>